All right, tonight we're going to continue our study in the gospel according to John. Earlier I taught John 5, 18 through 24, and that was by way of the doctrine of the essence of God. And then I was begin to begin a study of John 5, 25 through 32 at our last session. And of course we've had several sessions away from the church because of the various things that's happened to us. So we're going to do some review and then we'll pick up with new material at point one on page two. But first, let's use First John 1, 9 as may or may not be necessary. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study your word. Guide us now and direct us, for I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's see what we can learn then from John 5, 25 through 32. We'll look at it first in the KJV and then the NIV. And then we're going to go to the doctrine of judgments and uh, see what the Bible has to say. All right, here we go. KJV, John five twenty-five through 32. Verily, verily. In other words, that's a truth, the truth. I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also. Because he is the son of man. Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming. In which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. And shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father who hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. And that would certainly be God the Holy Spirit, but in more particularly, may have a reference to John the Baptist. But uh, certainly we know that the judgment, as far as we're concerned, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we will not be judged for the things that we do or say uh, because of what Christ did. He took care of all the sins of the world and all the evil that we might produce. But we'll have a form of judgment as we're going to take a look at that we like to talk about as the Bema. Alright, and that for church age believers only. But more of that later. Alright, now let's look at the NIV of John 5, 25 through 32. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. 
And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. So I put together the doctrine of judgments. First of all, an introduction. The scriptures anticipate a coming judgment by God on all men. Such was the expectation of the psalmist as he wrote Psalm 96, verse 13. Let's look at 11, 12, and 13 in Psalm 96. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant in everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His truth. So Paul confirms in Acts 17.31 that the Father has committed all judgment to Christ Jesus. John 5.23-24 in Acts 7.31, but let's just take a look at Acts 17.31, excuse me, not 7.31, Acts 17.31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. In John 5.22, for the Father hath for, excuse me, for the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So the subject of judgment is a large one. And of course, Christ is the one who's going to do the judging because He provided the answer to sin and evil. By dying on the cross, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the subject of judgment, let's take a look. First of all, there is a judgment of the cross. John 5.24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Romans 5.9, since we have now been justified by His blood, a reference to the spiritual death of Christ, how much more will shall we be saved from God's wrath through and by means of Him? And then Romans 8.1 and 2, Therefore there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus, Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And that, of course, is uh, certainly strengthened when you consider what is written just above it, like as in 
7.24, where he speaks of himself as a wretched man, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And then you have the eight, chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Alright, Galatians 3.13, that's important verse to me because that's where I realized that even the greatest man found in the Bible, in my opinion, the one who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, depending on how you count, uh, said of himself, O wretched man that I am. So we do sin after salvation, but our sin is taken care of because, of, again, what Christ did for us. All right, Galatians three thirteen and fourteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree." Then the fourteenth verse, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we must receive the promise of the Spirit. And then Second Corinthians five twenty one, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then the book of Hebrews, written by some anonymous writer, just before Israel was taken out on the fifth cycle of discipline in big time. In other words, written in 68, and we know that the Romans came in 70 and destroyed the city and the temple. So here we go, Hebrews 9, 26, 27, and 28. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. You have to understand he's talking about no longer do we need to have a new uh, uh, head of the church, that is to say of the Israel, a high priest. No, we have one who is the high priest now and he doesn't have to come each year and be put made high priest like the high priest had to be done back then. The high priest died, they had to have another one. And they would have another one. And then we have another one, but no longer needed that. So he's trying to make clear to the Jew, get out from under that lost stuff and get under uh, grace. All that God is free to do for you and for me on the basis of the cross without in any way compromising His integrity. Or the acronym grace, God really always causes everything. So then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world if He hadn't have come and took the place of all of the high priests. But now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And He will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Alright, Hebrews 10.10 And by that will we have made, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Free from the law, happy condition. 
Alright, there is a judgment of the believer in chastening. 1 Corinthians 11.31 and verse 32. And then we'll get to Hebrews chapter 12. But let's get 1 Corinthians 11.31 and 32. But if we judged ourselves, how do we do that? We name it back to God. 1 John 1.9 We would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So we name our sin back. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. And if we say we've not sinned, we lie and we make God a liar also if we say we've not sinned. Alright, Hebrews 12, 5, reading through verse 10. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do, make, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and no true sons, and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines for our good, that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So the old Hebrews 12.6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he uh, delivers, receiveth. As a son. Alright, now let's look at Psalm 32, 3, 4, and then dropping down to verse 9 and looking at 10 and 11 and 9. Talking about David. When I kept silent, in other words, not naming my sin back to you, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then we drop down to nine. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Alright, then there is a judgment of the believer's production at the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat, the Bema, uh, as a believer in the church age. But then there'll be other judgment, which we're going to look at. There's going to be more judgments in the Bema, of course. 
And then 1 Corinthians 4, 5, He therefore judged nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So judge not lest ye be judged, again, from the Gospels. For by what you judge, it shall be meted back unto you. So we are to stay away from judging others, and that's hard to do, especially when you're as good as we are. But uh, we certainly need to know that and need to adhere to the Scripture. Alright, 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that one may receive, each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And then we have 1 Corinthians 3.11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 and I know people in our church know all about it but then there are folks out there who never heard of the Bema Never understood what it's talking about when it talks about for no one can lay found any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So it's talking to believers and that uh, there will be a Bema for church age believers. And uh, how do you get to the Bema? It's, you have to uh, go based upon what Christ did. And that's what that verse is talking about. There's only one foundation that can get you to the Bema. As a believer in the church age, you uh, bring your, you might say your ticket, which is I have believed on Christ as my Savior. And then as a believer, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, that's divine good, things done because you find it in the Scripture and you did it because the Scripture told you to and God the Holy Spirit made it clear what you are to do and you accepted the Holy Spirit's direction. And then there's human good. Wood, hay, and strouble. All the things that you do because you're doing it for some other reason. Maybe to make yourself look good. Maybe uh, or whatever it might be because Mama told you to do that because the school teacher told you to do that and as opposed to divine good, which is done in the filling of the Spirit, motivated by, again, the Word of God itself, because it defines what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to think. So you accept it and you do it, and then you get divine good, and that's going to be rewarded. But the work at the Bema will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire shall test the quality of each man's work. And if what he has built survives, in other words, goes through the fire, he will receive his reward, a crown. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. But only as one escaping through the flames. So all of our works will be thrown into the fire, and it will be burned. It's the, one, the divine good comes out with the reward of a Stephanos, and we've been over that several times, but it's something really good. And all the way we know what it might be is to go back in history and see what a Stephanos was. And of course that was a reward that went to either a military hero or a sports hero. Someone who had won at the Corinthian Games or the games held in Rome at the, what we would call the Olympics.
And of course, they were given a Stephanos. And of course, that meant you got a landed estate. Uh, that meant uh, you received a large monetary stipend, so you didn't have to work from that time on. And uh, you got a statue and place in your hometown, a big parade, and you didn't have to pay any taxes. So that's a pretty good deal. All right, and that's uh, a lot of folks will receive those, and a lot of folks won't. I always like what Colonel Thame used to say, you know, if you don't, you might even go through that and have nothing. As he would say, you're naked as the jaybird. And there was no way you could even pin a, a pin on you, you know. But uh, who knows how all that will work. But we do know it's going to be there because the scripture says there will be a Bama and you will have your works evaluated as to divine good or human good. And divine good gets us to find us. All right, with the exception of the judgment at the Bema, which has been thoroughly taught in our doctrine of the Bema, which is under Pastor Mary's study books on our website, all of the above judgments are what we call non-eschatological judgments, just for lack of a better term, non-eschatological so it will behoove us to consider the four judgments which have eschatological implications under a single heading. All right, uh, there is a ju- here they come. Well, here they come now. All right, there is a judgment of the nation Israel. Ezekiel twenty verses thirty-seven and thirty-eight. I will take note of you as you pass under my rod. And I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge you of those who revolt and rebel against me. Although I will bring them out of the land where they are living, yet they will not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And of course you remember Ezekiel was one of those great prophets of eschatology. And uh, he was telling Israel like it was, or is. Alright, and then there's Zechariah 13.8. And the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. In verse 9, this third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. And that will happen one day when the Lord returns and sets up His perfect environment in the millennium. And then Daniel 12.1, 12.2, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, that would be Israel, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. And you remember we've had teachings already on the book of life. Everybody's name is in the book of life when they're born. And at the very last time that God can do nothing more, they're not going to believe, or maybe they die. Their name is stricken from the book of life. Alright, so multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Those are believers that 
that awake to everlasting life, and then there are unbelievers who will awake to shame and everlasting contempt. So those are, excuse me, who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. All right, then there are judgments of the nations. That again will be when the Lord Jesus comes back to determine who's going to go into the millennium with Him. Only believers. So Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, we'll read through verse 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come you who are blessed by My Father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry. And this is what happens in the tribulation where Jews are abused. says, uh, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. And many believers will help the Jew during the tribulation. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king, King Jesus will reply, well, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice not for a man, but for the devil and his angels was it prepared. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did or whatever you you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And then he speaks of judgment in Isaiah 34, 1 and 2. Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Again to the the last battle of the camp the last battle of the campaign of Armageddon. And then Joel three eleven twelve. 
13, 14, 15, and 16. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there at the valley of Jezreel. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be aroused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for His people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. And there is a judgment of the fallen angels who left their first estate by becoming human in order to impregnate the women of planet earth, excepting, of course, the women of Noah's family. Something you can read about in the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis, and you can also read about it in our doctrine of Tartarus, which again is on the internet under Pastor Merritt's study books. So Jude 6, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And Revelation 20 verses 1, 2, and 3, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding it in his hand, a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set three for, excuse me, set free for a short time. And we've been over all of that. You know he'll be there for most of the thousand year reign of Christ. And then he'll be released for a short season. So he convinced all the nations again. That they can take care of this Jesus Christ. We'll get him this time forever. But he speaks their destruction. And then verse 7. Revelation 20. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle in the number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, Jerusalem, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Alright, there's a judgment of all unbelievers at the great white throne. Revelation chapter 20 beginning in verse 11 and reading through verse 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And this what occurs at the end of the millennium. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. These are all the unbelievers 
These are all the unbelievers who are brought before the great white throne before Jesus Christ who sits on that throne. And they bring all their good deeds. They don't bring any of their sin or evil. No, no, they don't bring in their good that they thought was good, but it's just human good. But they think it's really good. I did all this good stuff, you know. I worked in the White House or I worked in Congress or I worked for the United Nations and or I did things for the United Fund and I was always visiting on Thursday and, you know, I mean, I was active in this organization and active in that organization. Oh, but that's not good enough, says Christ. So then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open, plural. Takes a lot of them to put all that human good down. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And even the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You remember, everybody's name is written in there at the moment. If they are believed, their name is there, and it's up to them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to keep it there. And if they don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the name will be stricken. All right, the eschatological judgments are to determine who will go into the millennium with King Jesus and who will be placed in Sheol in general, generally speaking. So let's have a little conclusion and move to the doctrine of Sheol. Clearly, this doctrine is an overview of the subject. Therefore, it should be studied in conjunction with the doctrine of Sheol and the doctrine of the Bema. All right, let's look at this word Sheol. It is a Jewish term for a place where all pre-resurrection dead once resided. All right, Sheol had two compartments, so we could call it a duplex. One for the pre-resurrection believers and one for all unbelievers at one time. Sheol is best thought of as a duplex where on one side we find the beggar Lazarus being comforted by Abraham, symbol of a believer. And on the other side we find the rich man in terrible pain and suffering begging for a return trip to up to warn his, a return trip to earth to warn his brothers. Now let's look at a chart describing the compartments of Hades and our Lord's trip to the new paradise. Alright, uh, can be translated Hades, can be translated hell, Sheol can be translated hell, and we'll look more of that as we go on, go along. Alright, let's take a look at the chart, the compartments of Hades. First of all, we have of course at the top there, the new paradise, the third heaven. Then, of course, we have the kingdom of God, a reference again to when Christ returns. And uh, then we have, of course, in Hades, there's your duplex. You have paradise, Abraham's bosom. There, he's there, he's having pleasant time. Then you have the torment side, where there's a great gulf in between, and that's pain and suffering. 
And then you notice an arrow that shows someone taken out of, someone meaning all believers that are there. There's nobody there now because Hades or Sheol, the Old Testament term, Hades, the New Testament term, they've been brought and taken to paradise. That's one of the things Christ did. Again, while He was taking care of the sins of the world, and uh, He goes and He gets His people and He brings them up to the new paradise. And they will return with Him when He implements His kingdom. So what's there now? All unbelievers are in the torment side. They're suffering. It's a temporary place of suffering. Uh, because one of these days they're going to be taken out of there and they're going to be taken before the great white throne, which is what the chart indicates. And they're going to be judged only for their works, not for their sin, not for their evil, but for the things they did in the flesh to make themselves right with God, which we could call human good. And this human good is all critiqued by the Lord Jesus and He tells them it ain't good enough because it only only faith alone in Christ alone will get you into heaven or get you over into the my perfect environment. So the earth has been destroyed and they don't have any place to go and they notice right off the bat, where am I going to go? I know these there's got to be something for me. And no, there's no place for you except hell, brother. So it's so important to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because the lake of fire, hell, Tophet, Gehenna, second death, place of misery. Now the worst place is, you know, you can take a lot of misery and we all have miseries on earth. But if if you can see ending, you can see it ending in the future. It's, it's so gives you a little hope. But there ain't no hope of this. I mean, you are there and you're not going to have any hope. You're going to burn forever. And we all know how painful burns are. And there you're going to be. Gnashing of teeth. So it's important to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So important. Alright, so much for the compartments of Hades. I call it Hades or you can call it Sheol. Whatever whether you want to use the Old Testament term or the New Testament term. So during the three days in the grave, Christ made two trips. He went to Sheol, or Hades as it is called also, to transport the souls of believers from Abraham's bosom to heaven. Now he also went to a place called Tartarus. And we have a doctrine of Tartarus, which you can go to on the internet and look on, read all about it. He went to Tartarus to let the fallen angels who had left their first estate described in Genesis chapter 6 know that his victory was complete. Because they had to see it. They had to know they're losers. They have to know the game is over. The bowl, the goalposts have been torn down, you know. And there you are. So he goes down there to let them know that I won. The angelic conflict is over. I am Jesus Christ and I won. And you are down here and you won't get out until the very end when I have a purpose for you. Now you can look again and see my doctrine of Tartarus. It's actually a participle, so it's Tartarao as used, but it's only used one time. And it's used in this one place. 
And it's translated hell. So you can't get your KJV out and say, okay, here it is. That's hell. Well, it's not hell. It's Tartarao. Never used anywhere else. So the scriptures teach us that Christ went to Hades to transport the believers in Sheol in the bosom of Abraham to the third heaven. The scriptures do not, however, teach us about the order in which each trip took place. Now, it is my view, Christ went first to Tartarus and then down to Hades. What we do know is Christ did go to Sheol and Tartarus during his three days in the grave. Ephesians 4, 8, 9, and 10, and we will close. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men because he made the giving of gifts possible as the King of kings and Lord of lords and the one who won the angelic conflict. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So what we do know with a great deal of certainty is that our Lord did go to Sheol and Tartarus during his three days in the grave. Now let's add Tartarus to the chart displayed on page one. You can see again, Hades slash Sheol, paradise, Abraham's bosom, the gulf in between the torment side, then the great white throne, and then going into the lake of fire, hell, Tophet, Gehenna, and the second death, and then Tartarus, where all of the Genesis 6 gang have been uh, placed, and it's a place of total darkness, where the most, it's actually a literary term that I guess it was Peter who used his talents of going to the public library or somewhere and picking up a book and reading about a place where the most evil of all demons were placed in some description. And he used that term and he pulled it out and he used it in the Bible. And it's only used that one time. Tartarao or noun form Tartarus. Alright, so much then for that summary, we're going to continue that summary on in page 11, but for now we're going to shut her down. So, uh, let's, uh, let's have a little invitation. This, this, uh, doctor, I mean, I mean, this session tonight ought to ring a bell in the hearts and minds of those who have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they need to do that right now. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, If you are an unbeliever, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because you are a sinner. Just as I'm a sinner and everybody who's ever been born in this earth was a sinner. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. He came unto His own Israel, but His own received Him not. But as many as did receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on His name. So all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord hath laid upon Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So right where you are,
tell God the Father, I am believing on God the Son and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. And now I'm going to provide our benediction. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to be a member of your forever family. Now I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in your grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.